Cresta. Today is the annual day uh, we call the National Day of Prayer. It's the first Thursday of May. It's been designated such by the U.S. Congress. And people are asked to turn to God in prayer and meditation. The president is required by law to sign a proclamation each year encouraging all Americans to pray on this day. And uh, many people may think this is kind of a, a quaint observance, but it does remind us that America, uh, throughout its history, has always been attentive to uh, religious matters, uh, the way we tell our story. Uh, the role of religion plays an important part. Uh, evangelical Protestantism in particular, very important through the 19th century. In the 20th century, we have the rise of what came to be called mainline Protestantism, and uh, which reaches really its, I think, cultural influence probably peaks uh, after the Second World War. With me to talk about what's happened, though, now that there's been a a religious vacuum uh, as Americans no longer are uh, belongers uh, as they once were, Uh, more and more people are identifying as the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They're not identifying with denominations or organized religion. With me to talk about uh, this is uh, Joseph Bottom. He is the author of an outstanding book, which we talked about years ago when it was first published, I think it was 2014, called An Anxious Age, the Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. Uh, Joseph directs the Classics Institute at Dakota State University, and you can follow him at Twitter, uh, at Joseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, Bottom, B-O-T-T-U-M. Jody, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, let's start with uh, an article that you wrote uh, called The Spiritual Shape of Political Ideas, because I think that will help us move this discussion forward. Many people don't quite get what you would mean by that phrase, the spiritual shape of political ideas. What do you mean? Well, uh, we could talk about it historically and genealogically, where these ideas come from. And you've pointed to the right spot, which is they come out of um, American Protestantism, which, you know, we Catholics and Jews were welcomed off and on into this country. Sure. With some ups and downs. But, you know, even we knew that Protestantism was the Mississippi running down the middle of this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we were allowed sometimes to live on its shores, but they were the river. Yep. Uh, and they defined the nation in ways good and bad. Uh, and historically, genealogically speaking, these political ideas that are uh, afloat today, um, sometimes with very violent results, uh, were... What happened when that river ran dry? These old Protestant ideas bubbled up. They, um, to use a different metaphor, the old churches, the Protestant churches, used to corral and contain them. And when they broke, these ideas were released and found a new home in politics. But And, and things like original sin is a very dangerous idea. Uh, things like apocalyptic thinking mm-hmm. is very dangerous. But you let it loose, and it's going to find a home in its natural habitat. 
Uh, and if the churches aren't containing it, it's going to become political. But I think there's another way to look at these ideas, which is their logical shape. And this, I think, was what I was most after in that piece on the spiritual shape of political ideas, which is just to look at the way ideas operate, the way original sin as an idea operates within Christian theology, and the way um, white guilt operates as an idea mm-hmm. in politics and culturally. And they are precisely parallel. They have the same logical shape, except for one key feature, which is there is no salvation <laughs> from white guilt. No atonement for white guilt, right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and there can't be. You know, it is literally I mean, no salvation, even more than atonement, because, of course, we cannot, and you and I, Al, cannot atone for original sin. Right. It's that dangerous and powerful an idea. And nothing we do atones for, politi- mm-hmm. for original sin. Mm-hmm. It requires salvation. Yeah. It requires the Christ event. <laughs> now, take that idea, which you cannot atone for yourself. You cannot cure. And strip Christ out of it. We have what Flannery O'Connor once jokingly called the Church of Christ without Christ. <laughs> and this idea of original sin now enters politics, cultural politics, mm-hmm. and we get white guilt. The only way you can become less sinful is by ever increasing awareness of your sinfulness. But even, of course, that is not salvation, because if it is truly original sin, a deep genetic fault in our makeup, then it requires something from outside to solve. That's the logic of Paul's account of original sin in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got the same logic here, except there's no solution to it. Yeah, it's universal. Uh, It's uh, something which uh, everybody has to fess up to, uh, right. It's uh, and and uh, since it's very difficult to uh, really nail down, we're always looking for instances of it, uh, and our uh, we have finer and finer instruments to uncover and detect in this uh, issue of uh, uh, white guilt or uh, you know the, the this this. Uh, White fragility, uh, as they say. Right, and think, uh, think about theologically, I, I, without God, if that makes any sense. A theology without God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it sounds like a Harvey Cox essay from the 1960s. <laughs> uh, and, but if we could have theology without God here, then you become more and more aware of it by finding instances in yourself, but you also become an ever greater agent for the good by discovering and attacking people uh, who don't realize it, don't realize how sinful they are. You're teaching them that they are suffering from original sin, plus you gain this free zone of, you know, um, power and the rest of the things that drive the Twitter mud. I, I think Rene Girard's account of scapegoating is very useful here. But mm. even with that aside, right, what you've got here is an interesting phenomenon in which if you were to say on Twitter or Instagram or any of these social media, what you just said, that these are very minor, 
you would promptly be attacked right. for not understanding the scope of the general problem. That's right. And what you need to do, this is a new thought that came to me just in the past few days now, what you need to do is affirm them, no matter how minor they are, because affirming them is an act of piety. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you don't attack the person who says that they saw the face of Jesus in their toast or their plate of spaghetti. <laughs> you think it's silly, but you don't attack them because it's impious to attack them, right? right? It's bad manners. It's like, yeah, okay, at least they're, you know, they're on our side. They're, they're believers. Uh, and we don't mock, you and I don't mock those people. We just right. kind of carefully don't say anything about them. Right? That's right, yeah, that's right. It's... Well, in exactly the same way, that's how the ordinary liberal, the ordinary person, post-Protestant person, responds to these ever greater and more minute attacks on, you know, white, on, uh, unconscious racism and all the rest of it. Uh, they politely don't say anything, because it is an act of piety in this Church of Christ without Christ. Hmm. So, I guess, the, I mean, this is something we've been discussing quite a bit. I mean, it, it's, it's been amazing with all the discussion going on because of George Floyd, uh, you know, going back, uh, you know, a few years um, to Michael Brown. With all the discussion we've had, uh, regarding police and uh, uh, brutality against uh, black citizens. We actually don't seem to have very much in the way of data, actual empirical data. I, we don't seem to have any reliable numbers for how many... We have the Washington Post book, uh, which tells us 40 so uh, blacks are uh, killed each year, or at least victims of gun violence. Uh, from police, but we don't have, we don't know where to locate racism. It's all over. It can't, it can't, we, the problem can't be defined in a way that it can be solved. We can't say, well, what we can do is we can change uh, admissions uh, quotients at uh, UCLA, or this is so big that nobody can propose a way of resolving it. And that's you being impious, Al. <laughs> to ask for data in this context is an act of impiety. Right, that's true. Yeah. Um, years ago, 20 years ago, I remember when milk cartons used to carry pictures right. of missing kids. That's right. And there was a general one that said there are 3 million missing children in America. And I looked at that and I said, that means one out of every 100 people you meet is a missing child. <laughs> and my wife said, that's not the point. Right, right, that's the good. The point is, you're supposed to say, isn't this a terrible problem? Right, right. And statistics get thrown around to give, you know, a pattern of objectivity and uh, quantifiable truth to, you know, the percentage of college girls who are raped uh, during their four years of college. And we see these numbers floating around, mm -hmm. but they are all meretricious numbers. Yeah. And that, that causes a problem for ordinary people, because I find now when I see any statistic that actually touches on a matter of public policy, that I am suspicious. 
suspicious of it just because I no longer trust how these numbers are generated. But I think the point of piety really helps us here understand why it is that we can see these numbers. And, you know, if we were to do a drill down and see, you know, how many of these people actually were black and how many of them actually were caught in the commission of a crime and so on, you know, the numbers would start to break down, I think. Yeah. But regardless, I have a suspicion of, of them, and that proves, Al, that I am impious because in piety, I should not be suspicious of them. I should say, like the three million missing children, isn't it terrible? Right. No, exactly. You've got a pinch incense to Caesar here. My guest, Jody Bottom, is the author of uh, an outstanding book that we discussed when it first came out. But uh, it still bears uh, reading, uh, An Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of America. We're going to continue discussion with Jody. And uh, this, this, what fills the void when uh, a, a Christian understanding of life disappears? Uh, when America has relied upon religiously based uh, social movement, in the past, and all of a sudden, religion doesn't have the force, the power to do it anymore. What will do? This is Talk Radio, where God matters. You're listening to Cresta in the afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is uh, Jody Bottom. He is the author of uh, a book that. Uh, highly recommended, called An Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of America. And we just we know that uh, the main mainline Protestant denominations, sometimes they're called the Seven Sisters of the, the mainline Protestant denominations, American Baptists, uh, now some one group called Evangelical Lutheran Church, but it's made up of two former denominations. United Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, United Methodists, Episcopal Church USA, and uh, I think the Presbyterian Church USA also. Uh, look at those denominations. They had about 50% of uh, the American population membership, and that was in 1965. It has now dropped down to 10%. That means that, uh, well, their, their last great moment was probably the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and the Civil Rights Act of 64, I think it was. Uh, Jody, let's, let's look at this. When, after World War II, there were a number of people who tried to revive evangelical Protestantism. They had the new evangelicals, the split from the older, more combative fundamentalists. Uh, of the 1920s uh, and 30s. And then after the Second Vatican Council, you had Catholics who were willing to work with evangelical Protestants on a number of social and cultural issues. At that time, the mainline Protestant denominations uh, began losing membership. Evangelical Protestantism took off uh, but the union of evangelicals and Catholics together was not able to fill the void left by this uh, mainline Protestant uh, uh, group. W- why? 
Well, I think we need to sort out the history just a little. There are more ups and downs. Sure, go ahead. I think. (laughs) Excuse me. One of them is after Vatican II, the the um, interdenominational discussions were typically not with the people who would be called evangelicals. Right. They were with the mainline Protestants. That is true. And there were Lutheran and Catholic dialogue groups set up by the Vatican, <clears throat> or set up by the National Council of Bishops here in the United States. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I think, you know, it's really abortion that marks a key moment. Mm-hmm. You know, the Southern Baptist Convention actually passed a resolution right after Roe v. Wade praising the decision. Right, right. And yeah. it was only thanks to the work of uh, Frank Schaefer and C. Everett Koop, these evangelical public figures, mm-hmm. who gradually brought the evangelicals around. <laughs> but it's even more, think of it this way, the collapse of the mainline churches, which really were America, when those seven groups, the one you didn't mention was the Disciples of Christ, which is basically gone now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when those seven Protestant churches built the National Council for Churches, God Box, their office building up on Riverside Drive in New York, President Eisenhower flew up to lay the cornerstone, because it was such an American institution. And, but when they collapsed, it opened up this vacuum in American public life. And into the vacuum were sucked the two largest Christian groups that had never been part of the main line. And that was the Catholics on one side and the evangelicals on the other. And they met each other in the public square. Half of these evangelicals had never met a Catholic. And <laughs> 50 or 90% of the Catholics had never met an evangelical. <laughs> right. I mean, we were city, Irish and Italian city dwellers. We didn't know the, the snake handlers out in Tennessee. <laughs> I mean, that was the way we thought of it, right? Sure, but they, sure. they get sucked into this vacuum. Uh, that's one part of the history. And it failed for interesting reasons that we can talk about. But we need to get clear first the second part of the history, which is this. The collapse of the mainline churches, beginning in the 70s, um, happens because they've all been essentially converted to um, a kind of theology, uh, which is, you know, Rauschenbusch is the great practitioner of this, in which basically you know you were saved because you have the right attitude about social sins. Rauschenbusch wrote that the idea that Christ died for the sins of a minor in Tennessee who drunkenly beats his wife is absurd. It was social sins that killed Christ. Hmm. Uh, And the conversion of the mainline Protestant churches to this kind of theology was, you know, interesting, but it also created a theological problem, which is if Christ is the latter by which you climb up to the higher ledge of morality and see the sins of society that he bore upon his body, if that's what Christ is, well, once that you're, you're at that higher level, you no longer need the latter. Mm. Okay. I mean, this is, this is a metaphor from Wittgenstein, but I think it's really helpful to understand why all these people whom the social gospel movement brought up to the higher ledge of morality could slip away from the churches and still think that they were moral. And well, that's as, just moral. That, they were the elite. Exactly. They yeah. were the elect. They had the right attitude toward the social sins. Yeah. 
Um, and with that in mind, as they stopped going to church, this opened up this vacuum and these groups met. But another way to think of this, Al, to understand our social condition is to think basically since 1965 or 1970, we have had an endless competition for of different groups to pose themselves as the new main line. Mm-hmm. This was the feminists in the 1970s. Yep. This is the neoconservatives to some degree. I mean, you can analyze them as, as trying to say, we have the central narrative of America. Yes, yes, certainly. Uh, and this is the Black Lives Matter people now, the kind of radical, critical race theory. We have the central narrative of America. Mm-hmm. We occupy the space that the mainline Protestant churches used to occupy. And to attack us is like attacking them. It's, it's trying to ban the Mississippi. It's a doomed to failure, because we are in that space. Now, I think it will be as short-lived as the, um, the feminist claim of that position was, as the Catholics and Evangelicals Together movement was. Um, there were problems with each one of these. And But the central problem is none of them really had that 50% of America and the history behind them defining it. Mm-hmm. This is, whatever the integralists say, this is never going to be a Catholic country because it never was a Catholic country. Right, right. Uh, it was a Protestant country, and my claim is that it still is a Protestant country. It's just post-Protestant, yeah. not post-Christian, post-Protestant, mm-hmm. which gives it certain shapes to our moral concerns and our moral outrages. And the key for this is to understand Max Weber's, uh, the great sociologist Max Weber, uh, and his idea of spiritual anxiety, which is why I called the book the an anxious age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Weber thinks, look, people can be worried about their salvation, right? But even after you get the Protestant Reformation, which claims to be setting everybody free from anxiety about salvation, that's the great idea of Luther and Calvin. Mm-hmm. What we find is it, it sneaks back in because people become worried about how they know they are saved. Right. And that spiritual anxiety defines the present moment. How do I know I am a good person? How do I know that I am saved? How do I, you know, the, the theological language would be soteriological. How do I know that I'm saved? Yeah. But it gets conformed, reformed into an ethical language. Yeah. How do I know that um, I am a good a person? Good person? Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, because I think the right things about environmentalism, I think the right things about uh, critical race theory, and I perform gestural acts of piety mm-hmm. um, to show that I have the right thought. Uh, and these gestural acts are, the more important, the more gestural they are. There isn't a actual scientist alive who believes that recycling is working. Um, but, you know, Baltimore has warehouses full of recycled or paper collected for recycling that they can't do anything with. Uh, recycling is a problem, an economic problem that we have not solved. But we can't stop doing it because the gesture no. of recycling. That's right. It's, it's an act of civic piety. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is true in a lot of, um, you know, the way school boards respond to race claims, 
<clears throat> and really almost everything in our public life, an amazing amount of our public life, is gestural in this pious way. The, I mean, what's, what is strange about this, though, is that is the underlying violence here. I mean, secularists had hoped that declining public religiosity would make for a more rational politics, right? But instead of getting a more rational politics, you've got heightened um, ideological intensity. You have greater fragmentation. Identity politics has taken on the, you know, the passion of a religious war. And uh, is what? Where does this? Is that going to? Will that eventually undermine uh, the civic piety that's being urged upon us by, you know, the this uh, white guilt narrative? And Al, it's you. You've asked the key question. Um, I have two answers. One essentially optimistic and hopeful. The other, not. The optimistic one looks like this. We have gone through periods of religious fervor before. Mm -hmm. Um, We have seen great awakenings. One of the first of them eventually gave us the the revolution in many degrees. For all that it was an enlightenment thing, I am convinced historically that it's set up by the Great Awakening about which Jonathan Edwards, our our single great American theologian, Mm -hmm. about which he wrote, in which he may have precipitated. And out of the second one, we got abolition. Out of the third one, we got prohibition. Out of the fourth one, maybe we got, if that's what it was, we got abolition, or we got uh, integration. Yes, right. But what through all of this, you know, we get these periods of religious anxiety, and they wear themselves out. That's the optimistic. Hold, hold it there, Jody. Let, less optimistic. Yeah, we'll come back. That's the optimistic. We'll look at the less optimistic on the other side of the break. My guest, Jody Bottom, An Anxious Age, the Post-Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of America. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Jody Bottom. He's the author of An Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of America. Before the break, I uh, pointed out that, you know, the secularists had hoped that declining religiosity would make for a more rational politics. But, in fact, we're seeing more and more irrationality in our politics. Identity politics has become irrational and even... uh, uh, violent brinksmanship is being practiced. Um, what, what what's the future here? Uh, the the hopeful sign is that some of this uh, new orthodoxies will simply run out of steam. But you have a you you have a you're not so optimistic. We've got one possibility. What is that, Jody? Right. That the first possibility was the optimistic one that we've seen these kinds of fervor and enthusiasms before. We've lived through several great awakenings in America, mm-hmm. and they all run out of steam. They all right. do eventually die down, because they take a lot of energy. Yep, A lot of, you know, people just get tired of them, and, and you can see it happening here. 
as comedians push a little bit or people push a little bit and get beaten back, but you see them trying. Have we, have we reached the point at which you can start to mock this? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And eventually we will. That's the optimistic. The less optimistic is this. Um, the people who thought we would get a rational politics if we simply eliminated Christianity, and particularly Protestant Christianity, from the very DNA of America were idiots. <laughs> because, in fact, I mean, for all the violence of American history, Christianity in its Protestant form in this nation made us a gentler people than we would have been without it. Right. right. And if you strip it away, it's not a big surprise that violence results, mm-hmm. I mean, because people are set free. Think of these post-Protestants in all their feel-good, self-righteous piety. They're just like their grandparents, their church-going grandparents, except they never have to hear a Sunday sermon saying that they're hypocrites. Right. They right. never actually have to go to church. They never get the message of the Gospels, which says, as Martin Luther King understood, that there's a nonviolence here that we should have. Yeah. They don't ever get that preaching. Uh, they don't have to sit and be uncomfortable in church uh, on Sundays. And as a consequence, they have all the old religious attitudes with Christ stripped out of it, and none of the elements of Christianity that made Christianity nonviolent, that made it gentle, that made us live with one another. And the result is is unsurprisingly violence. And the violence, if uh, I mentioned René Girard before, violence, if René Girard is right, that escalates very quickly in romantic rivalry. As I said, that's the, that's the pessimistic account. And I flip-flop back and forth now between mm-hmm. the optimistic, we've seen this before, it'll go away in 10 years, you know, right, you know let's have some historical perspective, and the sense that it's escalating, right. and becoming ever more violent, ever more strange, um, and that Christianity without Christ is dangerous. Yeah. In um, G.K. Chesterton's phrase from Orthodoxy, the world is full of Christian virtues gone mad. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're seeing, and its madness frightens me sometimes. Well, the pro- part of the problem here is that Christianity um, always claimed that it was never, uh, that the, the, the state was never ultimate. Um, the, the state was always relativized by the kingdom of God. Um, these, this new bunch, really are in some ways trying to establish the, the kingdom of God without God through the instrumentality of government. And so and that, that's an old analysis, Al. You know that the great danger is immunizing the eschaton. Yes, uh, in Vogelin's famous phrase. But I, w- I want you to think also about what it is that not having any metaphysics, not having any spiritual horizon does. That old analysis that said people are becoming spiritual without being religious is just wrong. They're not spiritual. They have no spiritual horizon, which means the mundane and the political and the social are of enormous importance, the only thing that's important in their lives. They have to try to get a redeemed politics, because there is nothing beyond it. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And this old Protestant culture that gave us the shape of marriages and births and funerals, that gave, that Tocqueville said, gave us the central current of morals and manners, that you know, used to kind of keep us in check, set loose from that, we turn out to be, unsurprisingly, a violent and outraged people. Yeah. I... I would wonder how long this can go on. I'm I'm more apt to believe that it just loses its energy uh, because it, the banal begins to supplant the sublime, and um, there's, it loses energy. Uh, well, Al, that's that's because you're an optimist, you know. <laughs> and and when, when I'm feeling optimistic, I'm wholly with you. <laughs> but I but but remember this: Pascal famously described the God hole in us, this God shape that Mm -hmm. can only be filled by God, and we make mad attempts to fill it with other things. These people are making mad attempts to fill it with other things, and if they fail, where will they fall back on? The God hole exists in all of us. We all are called to God. We have this shape in us, this holiness that can only be filled by God. Mm-hmm. And if we do not have anything to fall back on, we must fill it this way. And these people have no spirituality, they have no metaphysics, they have no sense of the real world which renders politics secondary. Right. They've got nothing else to fill it. And the pessimistic side of me uh, wants to say, they can only escalate and this always ends in blood. Yeah. Let me, let me play off that a little bit. Back as, as the 1960s and 70s came to an end, and evangelicals and Catholics were forming this, uh, you know, kind of informal coalition that uh, continued on through Reagan years and Bush won, and even stayed active uh, right up through Bush two, and then it kind of pooped out. Um, one of the questions back in the 1970s was, who can speak for America? And the question would be, on balance, is America a force for good in the world? And if you can't answer yes to that, you're not going to be able to win over America. Uh, Those who are the loudest voices in our current uh, political debates and social debates don't seem to believe that, on balance, America has been a force for good in the world, uh, which means they have a very different future uh, than uh, what happened post-1970s. I, I think one of the ways to, to picture this, Al, is, of course, the transition from economic Marxism to social Marxism. Uh, the, the, and this is where we could go to Gramsci and talk about the theorists of, mm-hmm. of contemporary Marxism. But I don't want to go there. I just want to speak more precisely about the Cold War. Go ahead. Think how many of these things are Soviet counterattacks on the United States. Um, Irving Kristen once joked, peace is a communist idea. <laughs> uh, and what he was, what he was, the joke, the burden of the joke, is that every organization that had peace in its title was actually backed by Soviet funds, mm-hmm. uh, and that was the you know that was the burden of the joke, but and it was a joke. But let's take that and think: the Soviets put in play a whole bunch of 
stalking horses, mm-hmm. ways to attack the United States culturally, rhetorically. And they were all about America is a racist country, and we have none of that in the Soviet Union. America is a violent, war-mongering country, and we have none of that in the Soviet Union. I mean, this was the, this was the, the stalking horses. And they were all false, but let's, you know, yeah. let's yeah. understand the way they worked. The extraordinary thing to me is, after the demise of Eastern European communism, the fall of the Iron Curtain, the demise of the Soviet Union, these stalking horses kept running. You're right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's like we have these communist stalking horses without communism. Right. Uh, they, you know, and so they just gather speed, and now we are expected to think that America, in its very foundation, was built on slavery. That it, it, you know, it's the arrival of the first slave in the new world right. that is the birth of America, yeah. not. Yeah not the Declaration of Independence. We are encouraged to think all these ideas that are finally, you know, anti-American. Well, the trouble is, you know, that has a consequence. The computer revolution has not helped us at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have this problem in which somewhere around 55% of college students, recent college graduates, think that the First Amendment needs to be appealed, repealed. Yeah, yeah. Um, because, you know, this, look, this is all just Enlightenment crap, and that Enlightenment crap is born from, you know, pseudo-Christian ideas, and we just need to get rid of it. Well, <laughs> that's a pretty big percentage of Americans. Yeah. Yeah, if they, if they have the capacity to actually act on it. The, the, the question is, what, what happens when... Uh, people make claims uh, such as these ideologues are making, and but then are forced to actually uh, run businesses, uh, grow up, run institutions. Uh, that tends to make one a little more conservative. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, again, another line of Irving Crystals, everyone is a conservative about what they know best. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, but also think of it this way, Um, you know, one of the ideas that escaped, one of these theological ideas that escaped the old Protestant churches and found its home in politics is an eschatological feeling, a sense of the apocalypse, an apocalyptic morality, Um, that we, you know, we are living in the end time. And it's your own personal morality and the culture's personal or culture's morality that is sort of central. Leave aside what it does to our military, to our position in the world, to our chances of achieving anything. We have an apocalyptic sense loose in the world. And the great thing about an apocalypse is it really does let you brush aside manners. It lets you brush aside everything That's except right. except you know the end of the world. The, the urgency is so great. This. Yeah. Yeah, and then the consequence is, of course, when the end of the world doesn't come, what do you do then? Yeah. How do you run your business? Yeah. How do you run your life? You didn't get married. You didn't have kids. You didn't build a career. 
you were always feeling like you had to live apocalyptically, and when the apocalypse doesn't come, you wake up and you're 40 years old yeah. and you've wasted your life. The revolution hasn't come. There's a wonderful documentary on the Weather Underground, by the way, in which a lot of those revolutionaries who went underground in the 70s uh, come back to the surface. And it's interesting to see how many of them still hold the revolutionary faith and how many of them, in their own way, kind of repented of it. But, uh, yes, when the revolution doesn't come, uh, it's like the kingdom of God hasn't come. And all I'm left with here is this mess we call the church. Um, You know, so... What is going to happen? What's their church going to look like when this is over? That's what I'm concerned about. Right, and they don't have a church. Right, right. You know, and that's the problem, because you and I could feel very apocalyptic, but when it didn't come, we could just go to Mass. Right, right. exactly. Exactly. Jody, thanks. Wonderful talking with you again. It's been too long. We'll talk again. Thanks. Thanks. The book is called An Anxious Age, The Post-Protestant Ethic in the Spirit of America. I'm Al Preston.